Let's turn to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Exodus chapter 2. In our study so far, we've seen God's faithfulness. You remember it was carried forward all the way from Genesis so that when Exodus starts, the point that the writer wants to make is God has been incredibly faithful to these people all along. And so last week we also encountered the the providence of God as he chose to spare the life of this little infant baby Moses. And we saw a foretaste of the fact that God would do a great deliverance for his people from slavery in sin through Jesus Christ, and that's foreshadowed. But in between verses 10 and verse 11, there's a 40-year gap. So when you come to this text today at verse 11, you find Moses. Having grown up in the house of Pharaoh, he's been educated in the culture of the Egyptians, but he says, I want to identify with God's people, not with Pharaoh's. And so let's pick up at chapter 2. We'll read verse 11 through 25. And remember as we study this, that this is God's word. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one... He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock he said to his daughters then where is he why have you left the man call him that he may come and eat bread and Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said I have been a sojourner in a foreign land during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob God saw the people of Israel and God knew this is God's word let's pray oh Lord how desperately we need the help of your spirit to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. Oh, Father, we pray that you will grant us that spirit and that you would be willing to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As a Christian living on this side of the cross, 
there is at least some common confusion about how we should understand and read the Old Testament. Reformed scholars have rightly said that when you look at the Old Testament, you need to read it biblically and you need to read it Christologically. Biblically, here's what we mean. What does the rest of the Bible say about that Old Testament passage? Our New Testament lessons this morning came from two spots that add clarification to the text we just read in Exodus 2. That's the reason we offer two scripture lessons each week. In 1 Corinthians, when we were studying several weeks back, we found places in the Old Testament where this letter was going to be in some sense foreshadowed and foretold. And now in the New Testament, excuse me, now in the Old Testament, we look forward to Christ. This is an Old Testament narrative. And we want to ask the question, how are the Old Testament narratives explained in the New Testament, fulfilled in Christ and in his church? Here's what you find when you come to this. You're going to study it biblically because the Bible is its own best commentary. The Bible is the the greatest instruction that we can have concerning other parts of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. But when you study an Old Testament book, you don't just study it biblically, you also study it Christologically. With an eye toward Christ, with an eye toward the great fulfillment of all things in God's Word. Now, why do we do that? Because this whole story is the story of God's grand redemption of His people, and it's all accomplished through Christ. In other words, He is the main character of the story. And he is the subject about which it is all written. Now, you might find our study of Exodus slightly different from what you are accustomed to. You might have grown up with a reading of of Old Testament books where you say, let's figure out what, what biblical principles we can get here, principles for living. And so if you do that and you come to Exodus chapter 2, you come away with some interesting thoughts. Okay, let's don't Let's make sure we learn not to get involved with other people's arguments. Okay, let's make sure that if we kill someone, that we make sure we do away with all the eyewitnesses. Let's make sure if we murder someone, we don't bury them in a shallow grave. Or, don't run away from your problems. The New Testament says far too much about this passage for us to settle with such silly interpretations. We want to read it biblically and Christologically, and I can promise you that if you do that, it will be better for your soul than life principles. For one method will save you from your sins, and another method, unless executed with sinless perfection, will lead you to destruction message of Exodus chapter 2 is a message that each of us needs very desperately. Why? Because there are occasions in our lives when we have what we think of as good motives, but we have terrible methods. More than that, there's other times in your life when you will feel that the Lord God has sent you to a place of exile, and you wonder in that moment, is God here, and does he see, and if he sees me in this place, is he going to do anything? to help me for my good. And so verse 11 through 25 provides us great comfort, and that is this. Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. And so our study this morning takes us 
to the methods of Moses and the mystery of God and the memory of God. We're going to start with the method, methods of Moses. You have to appreciate the people that you encounter in the Old Testament because they are a, a blending of all these human qualities, which makes them infinitely more believable because they're just like you and me. You contrast Moses with the heroes that are present in pagan literature in the ancient world. And you find in Moses real life error. In ancient literature that's outside of the Bible, you find characters who are really flat. And they might make mistakes, but their mistakes are only because they're finite. They're too small to handle the big things. But let's be really clear. In ancient literature, you never find in that fiction characters who are shamed or embarrassed or exposed. That's precisely what you find in the Old Testament. And you find that because these are not the heroes of the story. So over and over you recognize, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit like Moses. I too am a man of striking error and striking shame and striking embarrassment. And yet there are aspects of his character that you really can't affirm. I mean, he's a mixed bag. Like all of us, moments of glory, moments of rashness, it's another reason to know that what you have sitting in front of you in the word of God is really true. Take a look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is sin, right? And it's utterly clear, and the Bible doesn't make any questions about that fact. But the emphasis of the passage is not there to help you decide whether what Moses has done is sin or not. The Bible's actually not interested in debating that matter at this moment. What the Bible seems to care about here is to show you that the Lord can take a person of terrible methods but useful motives and still transform them into a useful servant of God. Now, if all you had to understand Moses was Exodus chapter 2 at verse 11 and 12, I, I do suspect that a modern American court of law would find this man guilty of manslaughter, right? But just manslaughter, not murder. I think a Hebrew court would probably find him not guilty. Why? Because the whole action is not premeditated, and it's done under this desire to protect the weak, and so there is in the reading of the text a sense where you can affirm his motives, but not his methods. One pastor rightly said, deep down, Moses always had the instincts of a deliverer, but he lacked the wisdom to deliver God's people. So what can you affirm about Moses in Exodus chapter 2? He has a real affection for God's people. He really does hate injustice. He really does have a zeal for God. And all of that is really good, isn't it? But then strangely, when you read the New Testament, the New Testament adds a kind of affirmation that at first seems strange to this story. I want you to listen to how Stephen, that first martyr, testifies to Moses. 
Acts chapter 7, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. This is powerful language. And then Stephen tells us what's going on in the mind of Moses when all this happened. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Stephen speaks about this with words like oppressed, defended, avenged, salvation, because the Bible affirms the motives, but not the methods. How many people in the world under seemingly honorable motives will sin in method. That's how you end up with abortion clinic bombers on the right. And it's how you end up with riots and looting on the far left. Your culture is a culture where the perception of of motives seems to be the sufficient license for any method. But Christian, you are not a person of the far right and you are not a person of the far left and you're not some weird amalgamation in the middle. The Bible says in Christ, you are wholly other than that and you serve another king and you serve a different kingdom. Never employ sinful methods because you think your motives are honorable? You know, telling the truth is an honorable thing. So you need to brace yourself because here goes. You know, hating sin is good. And I really hate that guy's sin. And I think I sort of hate him too. Or maybe... You know, overlooking offenses is good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give her the cold shoulder until she realizes that I'm bitter. That'll help give her the opportunity to come and apologize to me for what she has done to me. If you believe what the Bible says about your sin nature... You need to also be aware that there is so much going on beneath the surface of your heart than you might otherwise give credence to concerning your supposed good motives. Hebrews 11 is is even more affirming. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking for the reward. Hebrews 11 calls it faith. Faith. To kill someone? That's clearly not what Hebrews 11 affirms. The issue here is identity. By faith, Moses chose to lay aside the privileged position of Pharaoh's family, and instead he decided to identify himself with the people of God. 
Hebrews understands what you and I can just barely see in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11. I want you to take a look back at verse 11. It says, Moses went out. That is, he, he left the palace. And where did he go? To his people. And he looked upon their burdens and he saw. What did he see? He saw an Egyptian, a man who actually in their law has the right to beat this slave a man to whom he should or could identify because of his own upbringing. And who was the man beating? He was beating a Hebrew. And then you suddenly recognize that Moses looks at the Hebrew and he says, those are my people. One pastor said, however, that Moses tried to save them by his own works Instead of by letting God save them by his grace, it's precisely what it looks like when you take matters of salvation into your own hands. Perhaps you are more like Moses than you want to be. Perhaps there's something in each one of us that has self-saving tendencies or a desire to be the man. Bible says you must look to Christ. You must long for a better deliverer than yourself. You must honor the one whose motives and methods actually honor God, the one who actually can bring salvation to God's people. So Jesus is presented as a better deliverer. He's the only deliverer whose motives and methods not only honor God, but have the power to bring about real salvation. Moses identified with God's people so much so that when he encountered injustice, he committed murder. Jesus identified with God's people so much so that he chose to embrace injustice personally and to be himself murdered. To bring the deliverance for all of God's people. Only Jesus could do something about salvation. And he cried out to God and he laid down his works so that you might receive his perfection only by his grace. He took on suffering himself so that you would not die and suffer eternally. I wonder where you are today. Where are you that the Lord has not likewise willingly gone himself? And what do you face that the Lord himself did not choose to face personally? Some of you may be in really dark places, in hopeless spots. Will the Savior who promises to deliver me eternally not care for me in this very moment? Oh, Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. We've seen the methods of Moses. Now let's examine the mystery of God. It's the very next day that Moses goes out and two Hebrew men are struggling and one of them is in the wrong. And you can tell it from the text. Moses' question, why do you strike your companion? And that again, here's Moses identifying with the man who's being mistreated. 
And then from that interaction, Moses suddenly realizes the whole story is out. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. That's of extreme importance. We'll come to that in just a minute. But I want to make two quick comments here at this point. It should not surprise any of us that when people are mistreated and abused and beaten, that they are likely to turn and behave in brutal ways towards other people. And it is a fact that people who are abused often turn and abuse other people. But it does not have to be this way. And so, friends, if you have suffered under the hands of someone else, some sort of abuse, I would encourage you then to please seek help to talk to someone, to bring that story out of the darkness and into the light, because here is offered to you the God who saw his people being abused and was the only one capable to deal with that trauma and bring healing and deliverance to them. Secondly, the text tells us something. This keeps happening in Hebrew narrative. It tells us something by way of repetition. And so you get the word strike or smite three times, and then you get the word kill three times, and then the word for stayed or sat. Moses stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by the well. What does all this mean? Well, the Hebrew narrative does this in order to say, watch. Watch now for God's hand. A discovery that that shocked Moses is the the very event that God used to warn him to say, your life is in danger. It was an act of, of killing another man that made Moses flee to Midian. But it's in that exile, that time away from his people, that God points to the mystery of his ways. Look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? Friends, every single day, these seven daughters went out to water their dad's sheep. And every day they do the hard work of pulling the buckets up from the bottom of the well and another bucket and another bucket and another bucket. And then they fill the troughs. And then these obnoxious shepherds, these men who are arrogant and pushy and bullies show up every day and they drive the women away. And then once they have watered their flocks on the backs of these seven women, then the daughters have to start drawing water again. But not on this day. It's such a common event, apparently, that Reuel is expecting them much later. But when Moses sees it, he does something about it. Again, where does Moses identify himself? He identifies himself with the weak, and he protects them so that their flocks can return home to the father. He has the instincts of a deliverer. This is just the way God made him. It's the way God wired him. Moses is hardwired to do this kind of thing. It's in him by God's design. 
This time he doesn't have to kill to be a deliverer. When the daughters arrive back home to their dad, Reuel realizes that they've come home too early for his normal schedule. And so they begin to recount the events of the day. And as they do, he goes, wait a second, where's the guy? Go get him. We've made a major faux pas in hospitality. Look at verse 21. Now, not only does verse 21 fill in the blanks, it also explains the next 40 years in Midian. It says, Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here is the mystery of God. The next 40 years which look like a step backward into the wilderness is used by God to shape him. Yes, God hardwired him to be a deliverer. Yes, Moses has a zeal for God's people. Yes, he hates injustice. Yes, he wants to see it all redeemed. But Moses isn't quite ready to do the work and also to give glory to God for the deliverance. You know, the wilderness is a really common theme in the Bible. It's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. One writer said that it is in the wilderness that Jacob saw a stairway to heaven, Genesis 28. It's in the wilderness where Elijah hears this still small voice, 1 Kings 19. It's the wilderness where John the Baptist goes out and there he preaches repentance. Matthew chapter 3, it's in the wilderness where Jesus first defeats Satan while on earth, Matthew chapter 4. The wilderness is a place where the Lord often takes his people to remove the distractions so that they will suddenly listen to him. Those of you who are older can probably look back on your own life and you can see that God formed you or shaped you with certain gifts and talents. Maybe, maybe it was an internal makeup that was, that was fit for your specific calling, a vocation or a, or a ministry purpose. Whatever it was, you were hardwired that way from the start. But then how many of us look back and see that God did not move us from the place of that divine design immediately to a place of success? He moved us from a place of divine design to a place of wilderness, a place of trial. Because oftentimes it's only after some years of struggle some years of shaping, some years of trial, that you come to the other side formed and shaped by God and prepared to give honor to the one who made you this way. Like Moses, God often forms us this way so that we do not take pride in ourselves, so that when you become good at what God intends to make you good at, he has also emptied you of every tendency to self-exaltation. Now, if you are younger and much of your life is ahead, it will be helpful to know that this is precisely the way that God shapes his people. 
so that when various trials do come your way, and when you feel alone, and when you feel like the Lord has brought you into a holding pattern, and you're wandering in the wilderness, and there's a part of you that wonders, did the Lord bring me here to wander so that I would die? And the Bible says, no, I brought you here to shape you and transform you so that on the other side of the pain, you would be made utterly and completely different and prepared to give glory to me for my work. I wish that 29-year-old Eric could have heard what I say today. I wish 40-year-old Eric could have heard that. Eric, you're wired in a particular way, but the Lord is committed to shaping you for his glory. That's why he made the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where God's men and women meet the Lord. It's in the shadows of loneliness. It's in the shadows of uncertainty. It's in the shadows of sadness and pain and turmoil that finally you come to a place of reflection. And your eyes are made clear. And you can see there's a God behind this. And he will not fail to accomplish what he intends to accomplish. How kind is the Lord that he gives Moses a wife and then he gives him an extended family who worships God. That is, Midianites are descendants of Abraham. Abraham had a second wife after Sarah died. Her name was Keturah. And the Midianites are children of Keturah and Abraham. And then God gives him a son. And then when Moses names this son, you suddenly hear the, the internal realization that every Christian comes to as we walk through this life. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Sort of a pun. He joins two Hebrew words together to say, a stranger, I have been there. At first glance, you think he's talking about Midian. But the writer is so careful to give you the, the past tense verbs to help you know that what Moses is actually talking about is Egypt. The very place where he was born. The very place where he could call home. And here's a spiritual fact. Those of you who desire to walk with the Lord in this world must realize that you may gain all of the wealth of Egypt. You may gain all of the power and all of the recognition in this world. But if your true identity is found in Jesus Christ, you'll never feel quite at home here. And as odd as it seems, Midian, the wilderness itself, is more of a home for Moses than Egypt will ever be. And of course, that makes me wonder if you feel the same way. There's a deep longing somewhere in you to find your place, to find your people, to find the spot where you can finally sit down and go, okay, good, now, now I'm at home. But for Moses and for you and me, we are very likely 
to feel more increasingly like strangers than we are like it's home? That is until the Lord takes you all the way to the promised land. Until he brings you into his presence with Christ. So here again is Moses pointing us to the Lord Jesus. A prince who left his own home to sojourn on this earth so that his people would never have to wander forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. We've seen the methods of Moses. We've seen the mystery of God. We were going to close with the memory of God. Up to this point, everything we've read is about Moses and Midian, so much so that it's almost as though we forget Egypt and bondage and the tears of God's people. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Some of you have been there, haven't you? The writer uses three words to describe the end of the rope kind of desperation that that is evidence in this kind of prayer. They groaned, they cried out, and it's their hope that their cry will be heard in heaven. It is not that the people of God didn't suffer the entire time. It is that the Lord allowed them to languish in Egypt until such point as they would look in his direction for help. I wonder if you have reached that point where you have suffered and you have languished so long that you're finally ready to look up. How long do you need to sit in desperation? How much longer do you need to struggle with circumstances, with sin and its oppression over you, with the burden of the bondage that you can't get out until you will cry out to God and let him hear as, his, as, his, as your voice goes up to him? God, help me. Some of you may be enslaved today. It might be a particular sin that you are struggling to break free from could be the wrongs that someone else has done to you, and you, deep down, are still harboring it. Look at verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four verbs. And God is the subject of every single one of them. God heard, God remembered his past promises, God saw, and God knew. Now, friends, in the Bible, when God hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows, it is always the precursor to his action. God remembered Noah, Genesis 8, 1. 
God remembered Rachel who was barren, Genesis 30, verse 22. God saw the affliction of Leah, Genesis 29, 31. God saw the suffering of Jacob, Genesis 31, 12. So that these verbs have become so common through the book of Genesis that when the readers of the book of Exodus read it, they suddenly know exactly what to expect. God is ready to help us. And so for them... God heard and God remembered and he saw and he knew and he sent Moses. A man to identify with the suffering of God's people and to deliver them out of Egypt. But friends, for you, it is far better. For God hears every tear that you cry. He remembers his promises to you. He knows precisely the weight that you carry and he knows your pain and he sent Jesus the divine son who alone can identify with your suffering and deliver you out of sin and into your eternal home in his presence let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we thank you for your word how rich and full it is. We pray that you would cause your word to land in the hearts of your people and that it would not return void, but it would accomplish the very things for which you send it forth. Thank you, Father, for the ministry of your spirit. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.